Well, this morning we have a special treat for you. Uh, we have a guest speaker, and I know that's the treat in itself, right? I mean, getting to have just a break to hear someone that brings fresh life and fresh insight. And uh, I got to tell you, you know, I'm your preacher each Sunday or most Sundays when you're here. But each week in the car, uh, as I drive to and from work and throughout the city, Jonathan Storman is my preacher. Uh, I download his podcast every week and I'm blessed by his ministry, his friendship, and the ways that Highland in Abilene, the Church of Christ there, is, is uh, just restoring uh, everything there in, in Abilene and throughout the world, which is part of that restoration movement that God has called us all to. And so I'm excited to, to get to introduce and welcome him to the stage in just a moment, but I want to pray over him and then we'll show a short video and then it'll be uh, God's chance to speak through his servant, Jonathan. Let's pray together. God, I, I thank you so much for the ways you gift us, for the ways that people are gifting so many in this church right now just through serving our children in age-appropriate ways as they learn to worship you. God, thank you for those volunteers that do that. Thank you for those that have signed up to do things this afternoon to greet our community and to be a front porch to people who may not find their way into the building very easily. God, I, I, I thank you also for those that use their words, feeble words, God, to speak your message. And Jonathan is one of those servants that I'm grateful for this morning. So God, would you use him, would you pour through him the gift of preaching so that Christ would be formed in our hearts and in our lives and that we might leave today empowered more and more through your spirit to live this life This is the best way of life possible. So this morning, God, uh, would you speak and work and would you open our ears to hear the good news. Pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. My name is Zoe Wilson, and this is the story of Lazarus. One day, Jesus got a letter that said that Lazarus was very sick. And and he stayed where he was for for two days. When he went went to Mary and Martha's house on after two days, Martha came running out and saying, Oh Jesus, if you would have been here in time, our brother wouldn't have died. But I know that that if you ask for something, that if I ask for something, you will give. You will give me. Lazarus saw everybody sad. That, that made him sad too. He was sad that his friend had died. He said, let me see Lazarus. So he went over to the tomb and he said, roll out the stones. Martha said, but Jesus, he has been dead for four days. It would be stinky in there. But they did it anyway. Jesus prayed and, and said, Lord, thank you for hearing my, 
my prayers. When he had finished, he said, Lazarus, come out. And he came out, and everybody was amazed and surprised. And everybody was happy that Jesus had had made Lazarus rose, rise from the dead. Jesus was invited to a party because he had made Lazarus rise from the dead. At the party, Mary spreaded very, very, very expensive perfume on on Jesus' feet. Judas said that 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 the money should have been given to the poor. Jesus knew that that Judas just wanted the money for himself. He said, Mary has done something grateful for me. And you may always have the poor with you, but you may not always have have me. And thank you very much. I will pass that on to her. Um, it's great to be with you. Uh, Colin is a great friend of mine and a great preacher. I hope you know what a good preacher you have in Colin. Um, they're a great family and they love being here. They actually tell me that when they don't have to tell me that. So we thank you for loving on them so far. And also Wes and Kylie Raspberry. I've known them for the last few years. So there's a lot of connections. Congratulations on a great hire with them. They were at Highland before this. So hopefully you can scrape off the junk we put on them and, and fix them up. And there'll be a great student ministry for y'all. Um, <clears throat> so when I was a freshman at Harding, or sophomore at Harding University, I met my wife. And immediately, the night I met her, I went back and told my roommate... I just met the girl I'm going to marry. And she went back and told her roommate that I was way too short to ever consider dating. <laughs> so since, you know, Cupid only hit one of us, I knew that I was going to have to charm her over. The problem was I was incredibly shy around girls. I'd been homeschooled my entire life. And um, I was incredibly shy around girls, especially girls that I was planning on marrying. And so <clears throat> I knew I was going to have to charm her, um, but I was not very good around her. So I was going to have to do it on the phone. So what I did was I got in my dorm room and I kind of psyched myself up trying to do self-talk to get me to call her. I did for like 10 minutes. I would just pace back and forth in the dorm being like, come on, Romeo, you can do this, Casanova. And I dialed all the digits except the last one as I, I did that. And finally I called and the worst thing happened. I got her answering machine. And the reason that's so bad is because if I make a mistake talking to her, she's the only one that hears it. But the answering machine kind of immortalizes it, doesn't it? Anyway, the beep is coming, so, hey Les, it's me, Jonathan, we met the other day and I was thinking maybe we could hang out this weekend or something, and in my mind I'm thinking, you're doing good, wrap it up, wrap it up, and then I honest to goodness said this, all right, well, in in Jesus' name, (laughs) amen, because you got to say amen when you say in Jesus' name. I went, I told my friends, and they're like, maybe she'll just think you're real spiritual or something. (laughs) I love the topic that y'all have been doing in this series, and this is actually closing out your series on parting. And the reason I love it is because Christians don't know what to do with this. Um, I've actually seen a lot of junk in Jesus' name done about this topic. 
Christians often either guilt other people for celebrating or they celebrate way too soon and pretend like the, everything is okay in the world. And one of the interesting things about Jesus is he does not give us either one of those as options. Christianity is largely about how you relate to pain. And Jesus relates to pain and invites us to do it differently. So, for example, in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus throws something like 19 to 20 parties. And every one of those parties is after this verse in Luke 10. Jesus resolutely set his face towards Jerusalem. Now, somebody tell me, what's in Jerusalem that Jesus is going to? The cross. And every party that Jesus has is not an exclusion to the suffering of the world. It's him actually going to bear in the suffering of the world. But along the way, he gathers up all the wrong kinds of people, and he breaks a little bread, and he pours a little wine, and he throws a party. Because Christianity does not avoid suffering. It just doesn't think suffering is the main thing to orient your life around. Christianity does not avoid suffering. It actually says God is revealed through suffering. But this isn't a sermon about suffering. It's actually a sermon about a party. Specifically a party that's waiting. It's a sermon about time. So that story that Zoe just told you about Lazarus. Basically, Lazarus is this guy that Jesus loves. He loves the whole family. And when Lazarus dies, Jesus goes over there and he... He um, stands in front of Lazarus' grave like you just saw. And then Jesus says, Lazarus, come out. Now, Martha is not too keen on this, right? She actually says, Lord, he stinketh in the King James Version. Martha is ever the pragmatist, and she doesn't want um, Jesus to do this. But Jesus keeps on talking. And he tells death to let Lazarus go. And he has to specify, because this is what it means when, it says, when John says Jesus is the resurrection and the life. Death has to do whatever Jesus says. And Lazarus comes out. He turns death, turns loose of him. And now instead of holding a funeral, they're holding a party. And if you have your Bibles, turn to John chapter 12. <clears throat> well, we can read the first few verses. Here's what happens. Six days before Passover, this is after that. Six days before Passover, Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead, in case you just forgot that. Here a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. Martha served, of course she did, and Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him, because being dead really takes it out of you. Then Mary took about a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume, and she poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of that perfume. Now, back in the culture that they're in, Martha or Mary's not even allowed to be there. This is a segregated culture. And so while men and women can go to some parties like weddings, they can't go to most parties. But Mary is abandoning the culture. And it's not just that rule she's abandoning. When she lets down her hair, that would have been seen as immoral back in their day. Um, the examples I could give you that are correlations to today, I can't tell you in church because it's immoral. But Jesus, uh, she does it, and Jesus doesn't seem offended by it. Not only that, she pours out their life savings, a year's worth of wages, in a time where this kind of money is significant. And Jesus doesn't, offend, be offended, doesn't seem to be offended by that. Later on, he's going to talk about it as if she's acting like a priest for his burial. Um, and the reason she does all this... John, the master storyteller, is connecting 
This story, the story in the previous chapter where Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. Because remember what they're worried about. The stench. The smell. And now, he says, the whole house, instead of being covered with the smell of death, is covered with the smell of perfume. And basically, John, the Gospel of John is is saying to us, how do you thank somebody? How do you say thank you to somebody who's given you back your brother? The worst thing that's ever happened to you in your life. What would happen if that became undone? In the words of Tolkien, if every sad thing in your life became untrue. How would you say thank you? And that is what Mary is doing. She doesn't care about what the culture says, where she can and cannot be anymore. She's not thinking about savings anymore. Jesus has reversed death in her life. But not everybody thinks this is a good idea. In verse 4, here's what it says Lazarus, or Judas does. In verse 4, One of the disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. He didn't say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As a keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put in it. Leave her alone, Jesus replied. It was intended that she would save this perfume for the day of my burial. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. Now, to be fair, Judas has got a point. This is worth 300 denarii. Mark tell, the Gospel of Mark tells us at one point 200 denarii could feed um, something like 300 or 5,000 people. This is more than that. This could feed more than 5,000 people. This could really put a dent in world hunger at the time. Bono would be all over this, and Jesus says no. And it's not because Jesus is saying he doesn't care about the poor. The reason you care about the poor today is because of Jesus. What Jesus is saying is that now is not the time. And time is really what this story is about. Because this whole thing from start to finish is Jesus trying to give us a glimpse into when the moments come in your life, and they will come in your life, where you ask the questions about why God. (coughs) Jesus is trying to give you a glimpse into that. Because in order to make all this happen, Jesus has done some pretty phenomenal street theater, right? He's put people that he cares about through great emotional trauma. And look at what it actually says in John 11. When he hears that Lazarus is sick, leading all this up. In John 11, verse 6, if you could put that up. <clears throat> now, a man, from Lazarus was, a man named Lazarus was sick, and he was from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. This Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. This is before that story. The sisters sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. When he heard this, Jesus said, This sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory that the son, God's Son may be glorified through it. Next slide. So Jesus, now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was. So when he heard Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. And then he said to his disciples, Let us go back to Judea. He stayed where he was for two more days because he loved them. Some of you are thinking, if that's what love looks like, then just leave me alone, right? Go love someone else. But what do you do when the rug gets pulled out from underneath you? What do you do when you're at the casket? What do you do when there's all hope seems dead, when it feels like you're never going to love again, when that relationship's gone cold? What do you do? When the doctor says it's, not, it's, it's back and you don't have long. What do you do in moments like that? 
I think Jesus is addressing all the kinds of human suffering that we have, especially the human suffering where there's not glib, easy answers. C.S. Lewis, after he wrote the Chronicles of Narnia, after he had written Mere Christianity, The Problem of Pain, lots of great Christian apologetic books, his wife died. And he loved her very much. And he kind of chronicled the grief he was going through. And at one point, it started to dawn on him that there was another option. You know, we say either God is, is all-powerful or all... Um, but what if he's not? What if it's not that he's all-powerful? What if the problem with God is that God is a monster? He started to think as he looked back over his wife Joy's death and all the people who have died of cancer in the past. He said, what if God is a monster? And then, and then he goes on to say, because really think about how cruel the universe is. And he says, fate, or whatever it is, loves to delight, delights in producing a great capacity and then frustrating it. So Beethoven went deaf by our standards a mean joke. Then he says, it's the monkey trick of a spiteful imbecile. C.S. Lewis says, what if God is a monster? What if God is a spiteful imbecile? But what, I think Jesus is doing something here. I think Jesus is doing something here that even addresses C.S. Lewis. Something that shows how God views our lives, our death, and our time. Because this isn't a sermon about Jesus raising a friend from the dead. It's about time. <clears throat> There's this one time in the Gospel of Luke where Jesus is walking towards Jerusalem. And some really heinous things have just happened. Terrorist acts have happened. And so religious leaders come up to Jesus and they ask him a question. In Luke chapter 13, verse 1, look at what it says. There were some present at that time who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. Now let me just catch you up on that. Pilate was the proconsul of Jerusalem. He worked for Rome, and he basically was the guy who was the iron fist of Rome. And they're talking about a terrorist thing that Rome, the occupying government, had done on them. What had happened is some Jewish people were in the temple. They were in a synagogue or something. And Roman soldiers came in, killed the people worshipping, and mixed their blood with animal sacrifices. It was one more way of reminding them, no matter what you say in your worship, it's not true. Rome is really in charge. And if you mess with Rome, we will mess with you. It was one more way of making sure they knew that Rome was really the ones who were in control. Now that sounds bad in our world, but in their world it was unbearable because God was the one who made all of this. Rome really wasn't in control. <clears throat> and now there was no place that they could go where they would be safe. And so they asked this Jewish rabbi, what do you think about that? What do you think about this terrorist attack? And Jesus responds in a less than pastorally sensitive way. Jesus says, do you think that all these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered this way? No. No, they did not. And unless you repent to these people who are asking, you too will all perish. And then Jesus takes it further than just terrorist attacks. He says, what about the tower that fall, fell on the people in Siloam? Do you think they were more guilty than all the others living in Jerusalem? I tell you, no. Unless you repent, you too will perish. Jesus, <clears throat> not content to leave it at 9-11, he goes into the tsunamis and the earthquakes. What do you do when all creation seems to be groaning? And then he says, the problem isn't just that. The problem is inside of us. See, when they ask Jesus this question, what they're really asking is, is something God's people have asked for thousands of years. How long? How long, God? You can set this right. You can set this world right. How long 
will you do this? How long will you leave the world the way he does? And Jesus' answer is genius because he refuses to let people draw a straight line from a specific catastrophe to a specific sin, which we love to do, don't we? Next time there's a natural disaster, pay attention to how long it takes for some Yahoo to get on television and in the name of Jesus, leverage other people's pain for their own temporary glory. They're going to say, the reason that this happened is because of this particular sin. And have you noticed, it's never a sin they struggle with. Just once I'd like somebody to be like, you know why it happened? Because we're materialistic. Because we're filled with pride. No, that's not what they do. And Jesus refuses to let us get by with that. His response isn't to pick on a certain sin or sinner, but to point out the deep brokenness in the world and make sure we remember it's in us too. When I was a sophomore at Harding, I led a spring break campaign to Nashville because that's where all the pagans are. And <clears throat> we went and worked with the inner city kids um, there. And one of my buddies that was on the trip with us grew up in the neighborhood we were working in. And he knew they loved wrestling, is the way he said it, wrestling. And um, so The Rock was real big at that time. So we did a week-long VBS of the life and times of Peter called Can You Smell What the Rock is Cooking? And basically we had this guy on our trip who looked vaguely like The Rock, the wrestling character The Rock. And so we got him in a cut-off sleeve shirt. And then we got my buddy Bad Brad, um, and he would put on a devil's mask. And we would tell a story from the life of Peter from the Gospels. And then they would, the devil and Peter would wrestle. And that was how we would end every VBS session. And it was great until the last day when we were doing the story of Peter um, denying Jesus. And this time we flipped the script. So the devil beat the rock in the wrestling match. We were trying to give these kids, these inner city kids, a profound moment. Um, and it worked, kind of. Because what we hadn't planned on was audience participation. <laughs> There's about a hundred inner city kids, and they did not like the way this story was going down. And so they cleared out of the pews. And they just started piling on the devil, who was taking off his mask, yelling as loud as I can, as he can, I'm not the devil. My name's Brad, you know. And like any good college friend, we were like, get the devil. If he doesn't like it, he can sit on a tack, you know. Looking back on it, one of the reasons I think that happened is these kids had seen a lot. They had seen so much evil in the world. And if you give evil a face... And we love to give evil a face. It's easy to attack it. What Jesus is basically doing here is saying, if you want to give evil a face, look in the mirror. Because that's what he's saying. And it's true. It rings true to your deepest intuitions. It's like there's a splinter in our soul and we can't, we're aching to get it out and we just can't. And if we're not careful and if we're not honest, we become a part of the very systems we find ourselves hating. And then Jesus goes on to tell them this story that's a little confusing, but stick with it because it's brilliant. In Luke chapter 13, he says, so he tells them this parable. A man had a fig tree growing in his vineyard, and he went to look for fruit on it, but he didn't find any. So he said to the man who took care of the vineyard, for three years now I've been coming to look for fruit on this fig tree, and I haven't found any. Cut it down. <coughs> Why should it use up the soil? Sir, the man replied, leave it alone for one more year. I'll dig around it and fertilize it. If it bears fruit next year, fine. If not, then cut it down. So basically, the reason 
this is pretty interesting. It's a couple things. One, the fig tree, the first time figs are mentioned in the Bible, is when Adam and Eve are trying to hide their sin, right? That's the story a lot of people would have honed in on. But a deeper reason. Fig tree is used all throughout the Hebrew Scriptures as a metaphor for God's people. And when God's people are being who they're supposed to be, when they're in harmony with God and with each other, they're bearing fruit. That's the way the metaphor works. When they're not, when they're not being who God made them to be, they're not bearing fruit. And now Jesus is saying, there's a fig tree who for the last three years, as long as Jesus has been doing ministry at this point, hasn't been bearing fruit. And he turns the question on them, the question of how long, how long is it going to be broken? How long are people going to suffer? How long is there going to be death and misery? He turns the question on these people who asked it, from how long will it be till God acts? To basically saying, how long will it be before you start bearing fruit? Because you do know, when you're asking about God's judgment, which, by the way, God's people have always thought God's judgment was a good thing. They knew somebody was keeping score. That of all the injustice and oppression in the world, somebody was going to set the world right. So they'd ask, what takes him so long? And Jesus responds to the question of how long by telling them a story about how God's patience is also at the same time mercy and judgment. Because God's patience is mercy. And for others, it seems unfair. And the real way to ask yourself the question, which one it is for you, is to answer the question, are you bearing fruit? Because this, this is why Jesus says repent. God's judgment is coming. There will be a day that's not like this. God will say to all the evil and the death and the destruction, no more. And when that day comes, this is a word of warning for the people of God to be living out the kingdom of God ethic right now. But this isn't a sermon about judgment. <clears throat> it's about time. Because God's patience actually is good news for us, but hard news. But the greater the loss, the greater the joy when it's restored. The greater the pain, the greater the joy when the, the pain is relieved. The greater the tragedy, the greater the joy when it is undone. A few years ago, I met Jenny Riggs at Highland. I was in the hospital visiting her. And she, I always loved hospital visits. kind of a captive audience. And I've been trained to go in. You're there for like 10, 15 minutes. But I was there for like two and a half hours. And I did almost none of the talking. Miss Jenny did all the talking. And by the end of being in the hospital with her, I knew just about everything about her life. Especially how her and Stan, how they'd gotten married, how he proposed, the first date, first kiss, their kid's name. I knew all of it. I heard about how when she had to call the ambulance, when she had to turn off support. I heard about the ache that comes every day with living without the person that you love so much. And then, many months ago, when I did her funeral, when they gave me her Bible to look through to prepare for it, I looked through all the passages on heaven. And as you can imagine, they were all underlined and highlighted, but there were names written out to the side. Several names. Stan's name. And it dawned on me. The greater the loss, 
the greater the joy when it's restored. When I worked at the Hills Church in Fort Worth, my favorite couple there was Arnold and Lil Pitchford. Some of you may know them. Um, Arnold, they were just, you know, West Texas. He was a rancher, but he loved Lil. <clears throat> he would write poetry to Lil because he found out how much it, it meant to her. And I remember so many times seeing the way he loved her and thinking, I wish everybody could see this. In a world where guys are getting worse and worse at keeping their promises. And this is a tough guy. This is a guy who, he took life by the horns, literally. They were ranchers. And at one point when he's in his 70s, a bull got loose and he wrestles it down to the ground. And he gets pretty beat up. They have to call an ambulance. And as they're loading him into the ambulance, he says to them, you should see the other guy. And he meant it because he spit out a tooth while they were loading him up. And it was the bull's tooth. I kid you not. <clears throat> and I watched this guy walk alongside his wife of 50 years until she passed. And I saw a West Texas good old boy crumble over his wife's casket. And you know what? He writes poetry to her every week. And sometimes when I read those poems, I think to myself, the greater the loss, the greater the joy when it's restored. This week I did a funeral for a three-year-old who died in a car accident. What do you say? What do you say when words don't do justice because it doesn't feel like that's even a thing. As I was listening to the family tell the stories about this little boy, and I knew their ache was only going to grow because those stories, as great as they were, aren't going to happen anymore. What do you say? Why does God make the universe like this? Why God? How long, God? And while I don't want to be glib, and I don't want to rush past the suffering, I don't think Jesus invites us to that. I do know this. The greater the loss, the greater the joy when it's restored. A couple weeks ago, I got sick, just for a day. And for the rest of the week, I felt better. I, more aware of my health. I'd taken it for granted for a while. I appreciated being healthy in a way that I hadn't for months. Because I lost it. But I also have a friend named Christine. Christine had been in the hospital for years, and they couldn't quite figure out what was wrong with her. She's in and out of the hospital just about half the time. And last year, when they figured it out, Christine had a joy that I never have known. Because the greater the loss, the greater the joy when it's restored. The longer one is sick, the greater the joy when somebody's healthy. The longer the absence, the greater the joy when it's restored. And the promise of Scripture, the, the one that is, is hard to believe because it's, it feels so too good to be true, is that every sad thing honestly will come untrue. That what God did for Jesus, He will do for every single molecule of creation. And that means that one day, Jenny will once again finish stand sentences. That Lil will once again hold hands with the man who misses her so much now. That they will hear their little toddler laugh 
and play again. That one day parents won't have to bury their children. This sounds outlandish. It is the prophet, it's the dream that kept the prophets alive. So Isaiah in Isaiah 65 would even mention this. He would say, never again will there be an infant who lives just a few days or an old man who does not live out his years. The one who dies at 100 will be thought a mere child. The one who fails to reach 100 will be considered cursed. And in that day we will build houses and dwell in them. They will plant vineyards and eat their fruit. This is what it means to grieve with hope. That we have this hunch that God gives it all back. Look, I don't want to defend God. I don't think he needs that. And to be honest, of all the reasons not to believe in God, this is the one I get the most. If God is good, then why? If God could, then how long? But the flip side of this, for people who are suffering, God tends to push us. When, when it seems like all we can do is get tunnel vision and see the, the bad, the hurting. People like Job, God says, well, what about the good? What do you do with the good and noble and beautiful and true? What do you do with that stuff? And yes, I get it. It's an incomplete good. I'll grant you that. We love people and they die. We see beauty rot and expire. But it's because the Bible has this hunch that everything beautiful is a signpost to another time, another world, this world set right. This is the vision that sustained the earliest Christians. It's why Paul in Romans 8 could actually say things like, I consider our present sufferings are not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed in us. Remember, his present sufferings are things like he's been stoned many times. And the Christian kind of stoned. And it generally only only took once. He's been shipwrecked more times than he could count. He's been tortured more times than he can count. And this guy says, oh... What God is doing next. I can't even compare our suffering. Paul isn't making light of our suffering. There are plenty of questions we have. But the Christian hope is that God who is above time is also able to redeem what happens in our time. And this isn't a sermon about suffering. Remember, it's about time. So Joni Erickson taught us. Many decades ago, she was an 11, 12-year-old girl, and in a cliff diving accident, she became a quadriplegic. She jumped off, she broke her neck, and she could only use her, um, she had lost use of everything from her neck down for decades. She became a, a well-known Christian talker and writer, and a few years ago, she wrote an essay called Heaven. And in it, she said, in the first few minutes in heaven, She said, people will be walking around me. They will be meeting people, reintroducing themselves to people, catching up with old friends. They will be laughing and having fun. But I will be running and jumping and dancing. And I will have joy that they know not. Because the greater the loss, the greater the joy when it's restored. G.K. Chesterton is one of my favorite writers. And Chesterton, a hundred years ago in a book called Orthodoxy, he ends his book by saying, great men throughout history have thought that they had to impress other people with their greatness. Jesus doesn't do that. He appears almost casual. Around other people, they feel great around Jesus. Great men throughout history 
I thought that in order to be great, they had to hold back their anger. Jesus doesn't do that. He goes into the temple and throws furniture around out of anger. Great men throughout history thought that they had to hold back their tears. Jesus weeps openly in things like the side of a city. But, Chesterton says, and this is how he ends his book, there is one thing I'm convinced that Jesus had to hold back. It's the reason he got away from the crowd, got away from the disciples, went up early on the mountain, early in the morning in the mountains. Because if he ever failed to hold this back, it would overwhelm his disciples. The one thing Jesus has to constantly hold back, Chesterton says, is his joy. Because what do you do if you know this world is coming? What do you do if every grief you see, you know their joy is made all the stronger for it? Did did you ever wonder why Jesus doesn't go back to Pilate after he's raised from the dead? I mean, that would be a scene, right? What's up, Pilate? Remember me? Remember that washing the hands thing? Instead, you know what he does? He goes back to Galilee, this backwater place. He goes back to his friends, his disciples. Because he wants them to know, he wants you to know, what God did for Jesus, he's going to do for all of us. And every tragedy, every moment of suffering, actually makes your joy stronger. That what God will pay back becomes even greater. Because the greater the loss, the greater the joy when it's restored. Earlier I told you about C.S. Lewis's cynical view of God after his wife died. He didn't die thinking that about God. At one moment, while he was talking about that, he kept thinking, if only I could take her place. And then he, goes, he realized about himself. Yet this is unendurable. We babble, if only I could bear it, or the worst of it, or any of it, instead of her. But you can't really tell how serious that bit is, for nothing is staked on it. If it suddenly became a real possibility that I could take her pain or her death, for the first time we should discover how seriously we meant it. But is it ever allowed? It was allowed to one, we are told. And I find I can now believe again. Because he has done vicariously whatever can be so done. He replies, Jesus replies to our babble, You cannot and you dare not, but I could and I did. Something quite unexpected has happened. It came this morning early. For various reasons, not in themselves at all mysterious, my heart was lighter than it had been in weeks. C.S. Lewis, in his greatest moments of doubt and pain, was wrong about God. God isn't a monster. But Jesus was with him anyway. In fact, you know the very thing that he uses as an example, Beethoven going deaf? Do you know what Beethoven's last words were? Before he died, Beethoven looked into the great mystery and said, I shall hear in heaven. Because the greater the loss the greater the joy when it's restored. This is the Christian hope. There will be a day when everything changes. When the soon becomes now, where the future becomes present, where all wrongs are righted. This is the party that is waiting to happen. It is when the glory of God covers the earth like the waters cover the sea. It is when the lion lays down with the lamb. It is when there is no more death, no more despair, and no more cancer. And when we join in with creation and with all the angels in God's good world saying, It's about time.
Until next week, may we be men and women who live in great hope. May we enter into suffering and not shy away from it because the greater the loss, the greater the joy when it is restored. May we follow Jesus to the cross. May we hope well in his resurrection. Go in peace.